The Orioles made their first signing of the offseason last week, bringing in Craig Kimbrell, the veteran, to be their closer in 2024. But with Kimbrell set to replace Felix Bautista, how does the rest of the bullpen shake out? We'll answer that question and more coming up on another mailbag episode of the Locked On Orioles podcast. You are Locked On Orioles, your daily Baltimore Orioles podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hey there, Orioles fans. Today is Monday, December 11th, 2023, and welcome back in to the Locked On Orioles podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. As always, I'm your host, Connor Newcomb. And coming up on today's episode, we are diving back into the mailbag. Six questions to answer on today's mailbag episode, all coming from you, the listeners. We'll talk about the bullpen behind Craig Kimbrell now that the closer position is set, what the Orioles will do depending on how many starting pitchers they bring in this offseason and a potential move for Dean Kramer. We'll talk about what it means to, to be a good closer in baseball, how the Shohei Otani signing affects the O's, and What's the latest on the lease at Camden Yards? But that's all coming up on this episode of the Locked On Orioles podcast, which is brought to you by FanDuel. Make every moment more. Right now, new customers get $150 in bonus bets with any winning $5 Moneyline bet. That's $150 just if your team wins. So visit FanDuel.com slash locked on to get started today. So we open up the mailbag here on this one. Again, six questions to get to. When we jump into our first question of the day, it comes from Z Farm on Twitter, who asks, what does the ideal bullpen look like now for the Orioles? Obviously with it, the addition of Craig Kimbrell. The Orioles bringing in Kimbrell last week on a one-year $13 million deal that does include a club option for 2025 as well, but we know the O's were looking for a closer. Felix Bautista got Tommy John surgery in October. He will miss the entirety of the 2024 season. He was the AL reliever of the year. He was the best closer in baseball this season. They needed a ninth inning guy to replace him, and they went and got Kimbrell. And Mike Elias said as much after the move, he will be the Orioles' closer next season. So they've got the ninth inning locked in. Now the question becomes, what does the rest of the bullpen look like? And we'll assume that everybody's healthy because you never know. Pitchers get hurt. Pitchers have gotten hurt. But if everybody's healthy, let's start with what the O's do if they do add a starting pitcher. Because even if the O's don't get an ace, right, there's some questions about will they go get a Dylan Cease type, a Corbin Burns type, someone like that at the top of the rotation. It still remains to be seen. But even if they don't get a pitcher like that, I would find it very hard to believe if the Orioles go the rest of the offseason without acquiring at least one starting pitcher at all. Now, it could be someone in the Kyle Gibson mold of last year, someone that could come in and be your number four or five starter, be a veteran, eat some innings, come in on a one-year deal. At the very least, that is going to happen because... I do talk about how, you know, don't take a lot of Michael Elias' words at face value. But when he's telling you about the needs of the team and he's saying, hey, we want to get a reliever and a starter. And he said, hey, we checked off the reliever. Now we're focusing on the starting pitching market. All the reports have said the Orioles have been in on a lot of the starting pitchers out there. I would almost guarantee at the very least the O's bring in like a veteran type number five starter to round out the rotation. So at the very least there's going to be one more starting pitcher coming in who will have a rotation spot going into spring training. So assuming that, I would think you're looking at a rotation of Kyle Bradish, Grayson Rodriguez, 
John Means, Dean Kramer, and whomever that addition is for that fifth pitcher. So then you look at a bullpen. You get eight pitchers in that bullpen, five starters. You get 13 pitchers overall, so eight relievers. And you got Craig Kimbrell locked down in that closer role. So if you're assuming the O's add one starter and everybody is healthy, then you look at your kind of high leverage slash middle relief guys as a really talented group. You'd have Yinyer Cano, who had an amazing year last year. You'd have CNL Perez, who rebounded with a great second half. Danny Coulomb, who was an amazing find for the Orioles last season. And then with that being the starting rotation, that would push Tyler Wells into the bullpen where he was good late last year. That would, I think, officially push D.L. Hall into the bullpen as well where he was great last year. And then if we're assuming everyone is healthy, and we heard from Mike Elias last week that Dylan Tate, after missing all of 2023, has been healthy and throwing this offseason. There were videos posted of him healthy and throwing at driveline a couple of weeks ago. So if he's healthy, he's into that middle relief role. And all those guys together, that leaves one spot in the bullpen. You don't really have a long guy. Cole Irvin is out of options, and he pitched better down the stretch last year. So Cole Irvin gets that final bullpen spot as your long reliever, and those are your eight relief pitchers in the bullpen. Kimbrel, Cano, Perez, Coulomb, Wells, Hall, Tate, and Irvin. That is a pretty strong bullpen right there, I got to say. And it leaves you with a lot of depth as well. I mean, that turns Mike Bauman, Brian Baker, Jacob Webb, Nick Vespi, Tucker Davidson all into depth for your bullpen. Like guys that, you know, could mostly all end up in AAA Norfolk and can be in Baltimore whenever you need them because, you know, you will never last an entire season with the same eight relievers. There's always going to be turnovers, especially because pitchers get hurt. And that's some solid depth to have in AAA as well. Now, if somehow, some way, the Orioles don't add another starting pitcher, most likely Cole Irvin is your number five starter then if they don't add another starter. So again, it would be Bradish, Rodriguez, Means, Kramer, and Irvin. And then it opens up one spot in the bullpen. And, you know, maybe you wouldn't have a long reliever, but you would have guys who can give you multiple innings like Mike Bauman, like Brian Baker, like Nick Vespi, like Tucker Davidson, like even Bruce Zimmerman, who is still on the 40-man roster. All of those guys would be options. I mean, heck, Technically, Keegan Aiken is still on the 40-man roster. He'd be in that mix as well. And I think it would probably come down to Bauman or Baker to get that final spot. I would lean Baker just because I'm a bigger fan of him, but I could see Mike Bauman kind of being the final reliever. And if Mike Bauman is your final reliever at the end of the bullpen, you probably got a pretty good pen going on, at least to start the year. So I am feeling good about the Orioles' bullpen if everyone's healthy. Now with Kimbrell in the fold. Second question of the day comes from Chris on YouTube, who kind of asked a, a very similar question. This is basically a follow-up to our first question today. If the Orioles really go out, be aggressive, and add two starting pitchers this offseason, who goes to the bullpen? I think it's a very good question. First of all, if the O's don't even add any starters, I am still of the belief, as I just said, that Irvin would get the number five spot and Tyler Wells and D.L. Hall would still go to the bullpen. But there's still a good shot that Wells or Hall could win that fifth spot and push Irvin to the bullpen instead. But if the Orioles add even one starter, I think clearly you're sending Irvin, Wells, Hall all to the bullpen. Now, if they add two starters, that is where it gets pretty interesting because then if you're adding two starters, you're most likely saying, at least the point of this question is, two starters who are definitely getting two of the five rotation spots. Who are you kicking out? Well, you're not kicking out Kyle Bradish, and you're not kicking out Grayson Rodriguez. Those are not happening at all. So it's basically down to John Means or Dean Kramer, who would lose that spot and move to the bullpen. And I just think it would be Dean Kramer. I think Kramer's stuff would play better out of the bullpen than Means's would. And Means, the way he's set up now, not missing as many bats, coming off Tommy John surgery, I think is better set up to just kind of be an innings eater at the end of your rotation right now. 
Kramer was set to start with a bullpen role at the beginning of 2022 before he got injured, missed a couple of months, and then when he came back, the Orioles were so desperate for starting pitching, they put him back in the rotation when he returned, so he never really worked out of the bullpen. But I think it is something he could do. He's a very fastball-heavy pitcher. His main three pitches are four-seamer, cutter, and sinker. That's mostly what he throws. The velocity on all three of those pitches could play up out of the bullpen as well. And I think in that specific situation, I would move Kramer to the bullpen. He would kind of be your long man slash swing man. And honestly, I think at that point, you would trade Cole Irvin. You know, you would move Kramer to the bullpen. You'd look around and say, where do we have space? Cole Irvin's out of options, but he's still got three years of control left. You could get something for him. And honestly, if you're bringing in two starters, it's most likely the Orioles wouldn't sign two starters. At least one of those guys would be via trade and maybe like a Dylan Cease type. Cole Irvin could be a good player to throw into a White Sox deal for Dylan Cease. In no way would he be the centerpiece, but he could be kind of the finishing touch on that deal that says, hey, look, White Sox, we know Cole Irvin doesn't have the highest ceiling, but he's got three years of control. He's fairly cheap. You just need guys to eat innings for the next couple of years through this rebuild. Cole Irvin would be like the perfect guy to go back to Chicago as a part of that trade. So he'd probably be dealt and Kramer would take over the long relief swingman role in the bullpen. Four more questions to get to on today's mailbag episode. We've got another one coming up about Dean Kramer coming up next. And, you know, can he do what Kyle Bradish did this season? And we'll also talk about, you know, why Craig Kimbrell is just immediately going to be the closer next year instead of there being, you know, competition with guys like Yenier Cano and others. We'll chat about those mailbag questions coming up next. But first, this episode of the Locked On Orioles podcast is brought to you by FanDuel. We are moving into the winter months, and you can score early this NFL season with FanDuel, America's number one sports book. Right now, new customers get $150 in bonus bets with any winning $5 money line bet. That's $150 just if your team wins. So if you've been thinking about joining FanDuel, there is no better time to get in on the action. The app is so easy to use. There's a wide range of betting options, including spreads, player props, over-unders, and more. So visit FanDuel.com slash LockedOn and kick off the NFL season with FanDuel, official partner of the NFL. So we're back here on a Mailbag Monday episode of the podcast answering your Orioles questions. Thank you so much for sending in questions. If you sent one in and it is not answered on today's Mailbag Monday episode, that is okay. I have a running list going to the Mailbag questions. We've got a Mailbag every single week of the offseason, so we will get to those Mailbag questions on a future mailbag episode. But if you do still want to send in questions, email me. It's LockedOnOrioles at gmail.com or leave your mailbag questions right here in the YouTube comments and make sure to like, comment, and subscribe to the Locked On Orioles YouTube page. Let's get to our third question of the day. This one comes from the Knoll on YouTube who asks, do you think Dean Kramer can make the jump next year similar to the jump that Kyle Bradish made for the Orioles this year? Interesting question, right? Because Kyle Bradish, like Dean Kramer, was awesome down the stretch in 2022. Those two guys in the final two months of that season were an incredible one-two punch for the Orioles. Then Bradish came out and solidified himself as the Orioles' ace. Sub-3 ERA, game one starter in the playoffs, finishing fifth in AL Cy Young Award voting. He was fantastic. Kramer more so just kind of evened out. You know, he became looking like a, a good four or five starter, eating innings, ERA in the fours, some good starts, some bad starts. He was just like a solid average-ish major league starter is what he looked like this year. There's still another level, certainly, 
for Dean Kramer. And I think, like, I don't want to say definitively no to this question. Like, yes, Kramer still can make a Bradish-like jump. There's things in that profile for Dean Kramer. If you look at Kyle Bradish, especially in August and September of 2022, he changed his pitch mix. It was something I'd been calling for again and again. Like, Kyle, you got to throw more sliders. It's your best pitch. It should be your number one pitch. And he finally started doing that in the final two months of that year, got more whiffs on that pitch, throwing more strikes, and he just got better. He took that into this year. Slider was his number one pitch all season. Slider-curveball combo was fantastic. And he was one of the best starting pitchers in the American League. Now, turn it to Dean Kramer. His stuff's a little different because he's not really a breaking ball guy. He is a fastball guy. As I mentioned, four-seam fastball, cutter, sinker, those are the top three most used pitches for Dean Kramer. Those take into account, like, about three-quarters of the pitches he throws, sometimes even more. He is mainly a fastball guy. Now, that cutter has a good amount of runs, so you could look at it as like a hard slider sometimes. But that cutter was really good down the stretch this year for Dean Kramer. If you look at August and September of 2023 for Kramer, the cutter-four-seamer combination was awesome. The cutter had like a 32% whiff rate in August. The four-seamer was awesome in September. That's why he was so good down the stretch for the Orioles. And so you look at that combo, it's very different than Bradish. I think because of that, and they're not as dominant pitches, he has less of a chance to break out like Bradish did this year. But if Kramer can focus on the cutter, maybe make the cutter better and make it his number one pitch in 2024, he could have that kind of breakout. I just don't think he has the stuff overall to make a Kyle Bradish jump. I think Dean Kramer certainly can keep a rotation spot for all of 2024, and he can be at least a really good innings eater moving forward. And I talked about this on the episode a couple weeks ago where we reviewed Dean Kramer's season and talked about how, look, Dean Kramer at this point in his career looks like, you know, for the next four years when the Orioles have him under team control, if Dean Kramer is your number five starter for the next four years, your rotation is in really good shape. Like, he would be just a really, really good number five starter in Major League Baseball. And that's okay. Like, that's a good career to have. You'll make some money in free agency after that as well. He can take the jump. I just don't see it as likely as the Kyle Bradish jump, just because although the cutter's good, it's not the kind of stuff that Bradish has with that curveball and that slider. Fourth question of the day comes from Evan via email, who was kind of referencing something I talked about on my episode last week on Wednesday, did the live episode after the Orioles signed Craig Kimbrell to that one-year $13 million deal to be their closer in 2024. And I talked about how, you know, the Orioles were really looking for a big strikeout guy in that closer role because you'd much rather have a, a big-time strikeout guy like Kimbrell, more so than in your Cano, who had a great year, but is definitely... First and foremost, he is a ground ball pitcher. He does get his strikeouts, but he's a guy who's pitching to contact, throwing the sinker, the changeup, getting ground balls. And I said you'd rather have someone like Felix Bautista, best strikeout rate in baseball this year, like Craig Kimbrell, 10th best strikeout rate in baseball this year among qualified relievers, to be in that ninth inning role. And Evan kind of asked the question, like, why does a closer need to be a strikeout guy? Why couldn't Yenier Cano be the closer over Kimbrell, even if they were both on this Orioles roster? And I think... There's an Oriole-centric answer to this question, Evan, and there's also a broader answer. We'll start with the broader answer, which is strikeouts are the best outs to get, right? If you have runners on base, nobody's moving up if you strike somebody out, right? Even if there's nobody on base. If you get a ground ball to short, that's fantastic, usually. But sometimes things happen. Errors are made, guys beat it out, whatever it may be. If you get a strikeout, as long as the catcher catches the ball, and I can tell you with Adley Rutschman or James McCann back there, they are catching the ball or blocking the ball pretty much every single time, you are getting an out. Nobody's getting on base. Nobody's advancing no matter what. That is like the simple way to look at, hey, strikeouts are always better than even like weak ground balls or sometimes even infield pop-ups. Now, if you're getting a lot of infield pop-ups and you've made that a 
career and you've somehow made it a skill, that's pretty much as good as strikeouts because nothing really happens on an infield pop-up. But otherwise, even a ground ball, even a fly ball to the outfield, things can happen that can't happen on a strikeout. That's like the basic bottom line baseball thing. It's easier to escape trouble with strikeouts, right? You come in first and third, one out. You're trying to get a five-out save. If you get two strikeouts, nothing's going to happen. Even if you get a ground ball to short, maybe you don't turn the double play. It runs scores. You get a fly ball to left field, you get the second out, but maybe it tags up and scores from third. Strikeouts are the only way you know that those runs aren't scoring in those kind of situations. And also, it's huge in extra innings with the new rules. We saw this with Felix Bautista last season, how much of a weapon he could be in extra innings because they put the zombie runner on second base in extra innings, and it doesn't phase Felix because against most pitchers, hey, you know, they hit a ground ball to the right side, they hit a fly ball to the outfield, you get two outs, but a run still scores. Felix was so good with his league-best 46.4% strikeout rate last season that he would just strike out the batters and wouldn't even let that zombie runner score so the Orioles could do what they love doing on the road that I've talked about, which is tie game in the bottom of the ninth, Felix comes in, puts up a zero, Orioles get the zombie runner in the top of the 10th, scratch across one run, and then Felix just comes out and essentially would strike out the side at the bottom of the 10th, and the Orioles would win the game by one. That is what you want in that role. And I did talk about how Kimbrell hasn't really pitched multiple innings a lot over the last few years, so they're not going to be able to do that as much with Kimbrell as Brandon Hyde was able to do it with Bautista last season. But you still want to swing and miss guy for those situations, even if you use a different reliever, right? In the bottom of the ninth, you keep the game tied. You get your one run in the top of the 10th, then you can still send the strikeout guy out there. Look at it like this. It's kind of not easy, but it's much easier in the 10th inning on the road with the zombie runner to play for one run. So if you're on the road, game's tied, you can maybe bunt, try to sacrifice, do whatever just to get that one run across. And then you get to the bottom of the 10th, you bring in Kimbrell, you know he's a strikeout guy. You say, hey, I'm not worried about maybe Yin Yer Cano, you know, giving up two ground balls. And even though he gets outs, the run still scores. Kimbrell can go in there and get three strikeouts for you. That run doesn't score and you win the game. But specifically for the Orioles, their biggest issue with their bullpen last year, and, and the bullpen was very up and down. It got better at times. Then, of course, it, it took a hit, understandably, when Felix got injured in late August and then kind of rallied a bit at the end of the season when they got D.L. Hall and Tyler Wells in there. But in general, the Orioles' bullpen's biggest problem last year was with the strikeouts. They just did not have enough relievers who miss bats. All the best relief cores in baseball, all the best bullpens, have multiple guys who miss bats. Now, the Orioles' bullpen had Felix Bautista, who was the number one guy missing bats. Again, he led the league in strikeout rate last season. But when you took Felix out of there after the elbow injury in late August, they just didn't have strikeout guys in the pen. If you kind of look at the guys... In there Now, the league average strikeout rate was 23.1% for a reliever last year. I mentioned Felix was at 46.4. He literally doubled the league average. Next best was D.L. Hall at 28%. And remember, Hall was really only in the bullpen basically in September for the Orioles last year, so it didn't make a huge impact. Their number one strikeout guy behind Felix was Danny Coulomb at 27%. Yeah, that's above average, but it's not anything elite. And you don't really think of Danny Coulomb as a strikeout guy. Third on the list is Tyler Wells at 25%. Again, only joined the bullpen midway through September, so really wasn't a huge factor. And then your next one is Yenier Cano, who was right at league average at 23%. Now, he's still a great reliever, but then you have Mike Bauman at 22%, CNL Perez at 18%. And then even if you're adding a guy like Dylan Tate, he was at 20% the last time we saw him on the mound in 2022. So the Orioles have a lot of ground ball guys, guys that you know induce soft contact, but you need more swing and miss guys. And, and here's how to prove that. If you look at 
the war leaderboards for bullpens last year. Here are the top four bullpens according to war via fan graphs last year. Dodgers were first, Braves were second, Astros were third, Guardians were fourth. Those are four of the best bullpens in baseball. Now line it up to the strikeout percentage leaders for the bullpens last year. Astros were first, Mets were second, Braves were third, Dodgers were fourth. If you notice, Houston, Atlanta, and the Dodgers all landed in the top four in both the war and the strikeout percentage. It's a pretty strong correlation. If you're striking out a lot of guys in the pen, you're going to be one of the best bullpens in baseball because when bullpens come in, they generally come in with traffic on the bases, higher leverage spots, facing better hitters. You need those strikeouts, and that is what is key for a bullpen. So to get Kimbrell in, who had a 34% strikeout rate, it's not Felix, but it was still 10th best in baseball last year among relievers, that's going to help you in a lot of different ways, and that is why I'd rather have him in that ninth inning, and not necessarily has to be every time, but that's more so why the addition of Kimbrell was a good thing, and I think the whole 10th inning argument is kind of the best one there of why he would be, quote-unquote, in that classic closer role over someone like Yenier Cano, who also was just fantastic in the setup role before it would get to Felix last year, and I don't kind of want to move that. That, that seemed to work out well for the Orioles last season. Two more questions to get to before we wrap up the mailbag. Here on today's episode, talk a little bit about the Shohei Otani massive contract that was signed over the weekend, and then finally end with uh, the wild day on Friday that was the Orioles' lease negotiations. So two more questions to get to here on a Mailbag Monday episode of the podcast. Before we get to them, though, just did want to remind you that we are officially into the offseason here on the Locked On Orioles podcast. So this week is the first week of the offseason where we go from five episodes per week down to three. So that will go from here basically until the Orioles report for spring training in February. So generally for the next two months and change, we will be three days a week here on the podcast. Now the general posting schedule will be instead of Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, will generally be Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for the next eight or nine weeks or so. Now, if news breaks, if things happen, there could easily be episodes on a Tuesday or a Thursday. There could be if big things happen, you know, maybe four episodes in a week instead of three if things are really going on and the Orioles are wheeling and dealing. But generally, we are in the off-season mode now. So until the Orioles report for spring training, three episodes a week, but we will still have everything covered. And you know, even if it is a Tuesday or Thursday, and the Orioles make a signing, make a trade, I feel like those live episodes we did last week to talk about Kimbrel, to talk about the possible sale of the Orioles, those did well. I like doing that. I will certainly do that again. So make sure you are liked, comment, and subscribed to the Locked on Orioles YouTube page to get those live episodes as well. But let's get to the final two questions of today's Mailbag Monday. The first one, or the fifth one of the day, comes from Kristen on email who says, how does the Shohei Otani signing impact the Orioles? Not a lot, right? He's not on the Orioles. He was never going to be on the Orioles. But he did sign over the weekend a 10-year, $700 million deal with the Los Angeles Dodgers. Yeah, Shohei's staying in California, but he's going to the Dodgers. They seem to be the favorite all along. I always thought he might end up going to the Braves, but Shohei goes to the Dodgers. He announced it himself on his own Instagram. I mean, what a wild ride that was uh, back on Thursday. And then on Friday when Shohei was, you know, they thought he was on a plane from Anaheim to Toronto. It turned out to be one of the Sharks from Shark Tank instead of... Shohei Otani, really, he was at home. Multiple people reporting just factually false things during that day. And, 
It ended up being Shohei who announces his own deal. There's some crazy deferrals. Deferrals are things like Bobby Bonilla and Chris Davis got where you continue to get paid years and years and years after the contract ends so that the money is not so much up front. And therefore, the Dodgers have, quote unquote, more room to spend now. That was Otani's idea so they could add to the team even more because you can tell he wants to win. He wants to get to the playoffs. He's never played a postseason game and he wants to win a championship with the Dodgers as well. Biggest contract in the history of American professional sports. How it impacts the Orioles? Well, he signed with the Dodgers, so the Orioles will only see him once a year. We do have the new scheduling in baseball where you play each team at least once every season. But the Orioles will have, you know, no more than four games and generally usually only three games against Shohei Otani, which is nice because even when he was on the Angels, you had to play him for two series every year, once in Anaheim and once in Baltimore. So you see Shohei less, which probably helps out the O's. And I think the biggest thing about him signing with the Dodgers is that he did not sign with the Blue Jays. It seemed like the Dodgers and the Blue Jays were the two finalists for Shohei Otani. And it looked like at a time on Friday that he was going to Toronto. O's were going to have to see him 13 times in a year. They were going to have to directly compete with him in a division where the Blue Jays, despite some early exits, have made the playoffs back-to-back years. You add Shohei to that team, that's a division-winning ball club and maybe more. Now he's not there. Now you got the Blue Jays scrambling, and you don't have to see him in Toronto. That's probably the biggest impact for the Orioles. And then maybe the one other thing is just how the Angels react. You know, it did seem like from the reporting that although they weren't a finalist finalist, like the Angels were still in on it all the way to the end to potentially re-sign Otani just because he was so comfortable in Anaheim in that first contract. But now that the Angels don't get him, I know the Angels have continued to say, hey, we're going to spend, we're going to add to this team, we're going to try to get better this offseason. But do the Angels consider selling a little bit? I mean, tearing things down a bit without Otani and just resetting. I mean, they did say last week they will not be trading Mike Trout this offseason, but could they trade other pieces? I mean, it's potential. I talked about potentially Patrick Sandoval trade. If you go back to a mailbag episode back on November 21st, I talked about Patrick Sandoval, the left-hander who has two years left before he hits free agency. Could be kind of a perfect fit for the Orioles. Mike Elias helped to draft him in Houston when he was picked all the way back then before he was traded to the Angels. There's a couple other guys as well. Griffin Canning, a right-hander who has some stuff, but the Angels just have not gotten the best out of him. The Orioles could. He's got two years of control. Jose Suarez, an interesting left-hander with two years of control. If the O's really wanted to shell out stuff, like you got Reed Detmers out there who's got four years of control, really talented left-handed starting pitcher. So maybe just maybe the Angels would be more willing to sell, and maybe the Orioles could go out there a very like barren wasteland of a farm system, the Angels. They just need to get some kind of young talent in there. The Orioles could help them out with some of that position player talent and get some really good starting pitchers back if the Angels now, officially without Shohei Otani, are willing to sell a little bit more. And then the final question of the day comes from Dennis on Twitter who asks, what is going on with the lease right now at Oriole Park at Camden Yards? Dennis, that is a great question. This is something I hope to address even further on one of the two other episodes coming up later this week to really dive into the latest on the lease. But we got a lot of news on Friday pertaining to the lease. What we knew coming in was that the lease expires, the current lease on Oriole Park at Camden Yards, expires on December 31st. Yes, we are 20 days away from the lease expiring. And the two sides, you know, John Angelos and the state, whomever, they were negotiating. But Angelos was asking for a lot, right? He wanted the development rights to the places around the stadium, to the warehouse. He wanted to have the Orioles be the one that maintain it instead of the Maryland Stadium Authority. He was earmarked. Remember, all he had to do was sign the lease, and the Orioles would get $600 million from the state to better the stadium, and he was still asking for more money than that. Then we got the reporting that, you know, things were not going so well. We got the reporting from the Baltimore Sun that, you know, 
it could pass December 31st without a deal. And if that happens, the Orioles would do month-to-month lease extensions to just give themselves a little more time to sign it. Remember, the original lease was up at the end of 2021, but they agreed to a two-year extension to have more time to negotiate. Well, those two years are almost up, and they still haven't signed anything. But then on Friday, the Baltimore Sun breaks a story that the Orioles and the state have a tentative agreement for a lease for what they thought was 30 years. Now, that was different than, remember, on September 28th, the night the Orioles clinched the division, they put up on the scoreboard, we have a 30-year agreement to stay at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. That turned out to be not a lease, but just a memorandum of understanding, which is kind of like a handshake agreement that has no legal binding whatsoever. It turned out it wasn't really a lease, and despite John Angelos and Governor Westmore celebrating up in the owner's box and making it all about them and making it seem like, hey, you know, we did it, they, they didn't do it at all. It was shades of George W. Bush uh, mission accomplished banner. They didn't do anything. And now talks were falling apart a little bit more, and John Angelos wanted more, and the state wanted different things. But then the Sun reported that there was a tentative agreement, and that was mostly true. But a couple hours later, now the tentative agreement report was, hey, it's not signed yet. It has been agreed to at the lower stages. It just has to go up the food chain to Westmore and his people be signed, and then it'll be good to go. It's just a couple steps away. Then a couple hours later, the Baltimore Banner reported that while, yes, there was that initial agreement, Westmore declined to sign that tentative agreement because the president of the Maryland Senate, Bill Ferguson, has some concerns about the agreement having to do with the financials and the money they were giving Angelos and, you know, what the rate they were giving to him on the land and other things. And, you know, there's good pieces in the banner and the sun about them. Please go read them for more info. But they were valid concerns by Ferguson that held up the deal. So it's not being signed. And in that report from the banner, it also included that the sides now maybe think, hey, we're not going to get one signed at this point by December 31st. Now, you still bring in the report from the Sun that says they can go month to month. They could do another one-year extension and push it to December 31st of 2024 to give them more time, which means the Orioles would definitely have a home in Baltimore next year. Either way, they're going to keep extending it so the O's can at least play here in 2024. But you got to get that long-term lease. It's free money, $600 million. The state shouldn't be giving anyone $600 million, especially for a baseball stadium. However, they are. Just sign it and take the money. But that's not happening. And now the other part of that banner report was that after the reports came out from Bloomberg on Thursday, that there was a potential interested David Rubenstein billionaire. He was interested in buying the Orioles, trying to make it happen. Talked about it last week on the pod. It was reported in the banner that in a private phone call, John Angelos called Governor Westmore and told him, we are not selling and the Orioles are staying in the family. Now, John Angelos famously, you know, has never lied, obviously, but something to keep in mind, too, as the lease goes forward. And again, the hope is later this week on the pod, we will uh, have some more conversations about what specifically is really going on and what the next steps are with this Camden Yards lease. But everything John Angelos touches turns into a mess. I think we'd all be better off if he was not the owner of the Orioles. But that'll do it for today's episode. Again, back down to three days a week. So the plan is we will be back with you on Wednesday with another new episode. Until then, though, I'm Connor Newcomb, and this has been the Locked On Orioles podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team, every day.